Church. I invite you to pull up your Bibles as we will be reading from Ezra 1. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it is on page 389. Again, it's Ezra 1, and you can find it on page 389. Let's stand together as we start reading in Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then he rose up, then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to, stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out of Shesbedar, the king, uh, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them: thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand four hundred. All this did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. I just want to see how fitting it was that Brian would have read that passage, since his son's name is Ezra, the fact that he would read from the book of Ezra. Thank you, Brian, for the reading. Let me pray for us before we get into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessing it is to be able to hear your word read and also to be able to sit under the preaching of your word. Father, we recognize that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but ultimately, it accomplishes that which you purpose. I also want to ask you just to take a moment to pray for me, especially as I'm trying to overcome this cold that I've had the last few days. Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you know that my son's name is Hudson. Now, some of you think that I named him after a river in New York, but that's not the case. Some people who are old enough remember an old cartoon series called Gargoyles. 
We did not name him after a cartoon character either. We named him after a missionary named Hudson Taylor. And I want to share with you a pivotal moment in his life. On June 26, 1864, Hudson Taylor left the middle of a worship service at Brighton Beach. And the reason why he left that worship service is because he couldn't stand the sight of this large congregation of Christians worshiping God while millions in China perished without knowledge of the gospel. In fact, he writes this in his journal. Unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge. I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony. Hudson Taylor had a singular concern that day. The millions of Chinese that would perish apart from God unless the Lord raised up workers. This concern, this burden prompted him to pray. And he asked that the Lord would raise up 24 workers that would go with him to the interior of China to share the gospel. And he came to the number 24 because there were 11 provinces of China. He wanted two missionaries in each province plus Mongolia that would total 24 missionaries. And shortly after this prayer for 24 workers, Hudson Taylor would found a mission organization called China Inland Mission. And this organization would devote itself to bring the gospel to the Chinese. So God stirred up Hudson Taylor's heart to see the Chinese evangelize. Now, God oftentimes stirs us up by showing us the work that needs to be done. He might show us this work through articles that we read. Maybe an article on the Gospel Coalition website talking about the great dechurching shows us how many people in recent times have walked away from their faith, and that gives us a burden that stirs us up. Maybe reports from a book such as Operation World shows us how many people groups still have no access to the gospel, and it stirs us up to share the gospel with the unreached. Or maybe God shows us the work that needs to be done as we continue to serve at our church. We see the need for guests to be welcome. We see the need for more Sunday school teachers. We see the need for more small group leaders. And being members of this church, I'm sure that you all see needs. Facility maintenance, mentorship, biblical literacy, marriage counseling, coaching for parents. God shows us the work that needs to be done so that we might be stirred up. But the question is, what should we do when we feel this stirring? What do we do when we feel this burden? What should we do when we feel that there's something that needs to be done to address an issue within the church? What should we do when we feel this, this prompting? What should we do so that the gospel might advance? And the answer to that question is to pray. And I know it sounds simple, but to pray to see if God would actually stir up people to join you in doing that work. Ask if God would raise up people, other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ that would partner with you to accomplish this task. Ask him 
if this is something that you want me to do, raise up people. Put forth that request before the Lord. Plead for help and see if God would stir up people to help you to do this work. And we see this principle at play in this morning's passage, Ezra chapter 1. And so if you haven't turned there already, please turn there, Ezra chapter 1. So if you have a hard time finding it, you turn to the middle, Psalms, and then you go to the left. So then you turn back that way, and you'll eventually get to Ezra, okay? Now, this week, we begin a series in Ezra, Nehemiah, and we titled this series, Rebuilding the Ruins. Now, technically, only today's sermon is based on Ezra, and all the subsequent sermons will be in Nehemiah. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah comprise one book. It tells one story. It talks about how God brings Israel out of exile in the land of Babylon and restores them to their homeland, to Israel. That God reestablishes Israel as a priestly nation so that other people might come to know him. Now, there had already been Israelites, such as Daniel, who had been praying that God would end this exile and that God would send his people back. And that Daniel asked that God would reestablish Jerusalem as a place where his name would dwell. And Ezra and Nehemiah show how God answers that prayer. That God raises up Ezra to rebuild the temple. And then God later raises up Jeremiah to restore the wall of Jerusalem so that it could be a city once again. Now, one might have to wonder or think about, well, what do these stories have to do with us? We're not Israelites. We're not in exile in Babylon. Uh, we don't even worship at a temple. We worship at South Main Street in Houston. Now, while we may not be Israelites, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah show us God's faithfulness, that he is faithful to stir up, to raise up individuals who will help his people to be a witness for him, a witness in an unbelieving world, that God now raises up the church so that we might serve as a light in a dark place, and there's always work to be done. So what do we do again if we sense God stirring us up to do a work, that we pray, that we pray that God might show us people who would help us in that work? But who are those people? Who are those people that we should be looking out for? Who are those people that we should see if we can potentially find? And in this morning's text, we're going to see three types of people that God would stir up. Three categories of individuals, three kinds of people, three kinds of molds, different types of people that God will stir up. So the first type of people that God will stir up is that he will stir up people who envision the work to be done. God will raise up people, stir them up, who see the task that is unfinished. They have an ability to discern what does God need his people to do. And God will give these individuals this ability, this skill to cast vision. And that God stirs up this type of of people, a people who envision the work to be done. And we see this in this morning's text, because God stirs up 
Cyrus, a king, to cast vision on rebuilding the temple. That Cyrus saw the need for Israel to return to the land and rebuild their worship space. And the text explains this. Look at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king, Pers king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And we see in this initial verse that God fulfills his word by stirring up Cyrus. As I said before, God already told Jeremiah, hey, Israel is going to be in exile, but they are going to be in exile for 70 years. After 70 years, I'm going to defeat Babylon and then bring them back into the land. And another prophet, Isaiah, would actually say that the person who will defeat Babylon, the person who will bring or allow Israel to go back to the land, is Cyrus. That Cyrus would enable Israel to return. Now, there's a word here used, stirred up. And I've already said it multiple times, and the word stirred up in the Bible is used oftentimes in the context of waking someone up. And we adopt that vocabulary when someone is slowly waking up as well. For instance, we say often, I hear our child stirring. But the Bible oftentimes actually gives a more specific detail, adds to it that who is the one who does the stirring? It is the Lord. God is the one who stirs up people. He is the one who arouses them. He is the one who motivates them. He is the one who causes them to do his purposes. And in this case, God arouses Cyrus to proclaim the return of Israel. Now, it's interesting because God can stir up anyone to do his work. Look at the phrase, king of Persia. In this initial verse, it's already repeated two times. It's a reminder that Cyrus is not an Israelite. He is a Persian leading the Persian Medo Empire. He's the one who defeated Babylon. He is a foreigner, a Gentile. But God controls even the hearts of a Gentile king to accomplish his purposes. And Cyrus attributes this vision of rebuilding the temple ultimately to God. If you look at the text or the following text, you'll see that the word God is repeated five times in this proclamation. It says God of heaven in verse one. And it shows that God sovereignly rules everything. And then it goes on to say God with him in verse three. God be with him, showing that God ultimately is relational. There's also a phrase here, it says in verse 3, God of Israel. That God has chosen Israel to have a special relationship with. And then he goes on to say, God who is in Jerusalem. That God has chosen Jerusalem to be the specific place where he dwells. And then lastly in verse 4, it talks about the house of God. That there is a place where people will worship God. And it's the Israelite God that gives Cyrus this vision to rebuild the temple. Now, let's look a little bit more closely at Cyrus's proclamation. Because in this proclamation, we see that Cyrus envisions and sees that the people of Israel would return to the land, rebuild the temple. The proclamation begins in verse 2. 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, the Persians had a different practice than the Babylonians. When the Babylonian Empire conquered a land, they would deport them back to Babylonia. But the Persian Empire sent all the conquered people back to their homelands to build temples to their gods. In fact, there is an extra-biblical attestation evidence to this fact. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And in this cylinder, it describes how Cyrus allowed different people to return to their homelands to rebuild temples to their gods, hoping for this purpose, that he would gain favor with these foreign gods. Now, this temple for Israel, the temple is central to who Israel is. It is significant in their identity. I mean, recall their first building project in the wilderness. God leads them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. God establishes a covenant with Israel, and the first thing he tells them to build is a tabernacle. And this would be where the presence of God dwells. And unlike the other people of the earth, God would actually dwell with the people of Israel. And they would be for him priests. Because it is through the nation of Israel that people would come to know God. And so wherever the Israelites travel, the tabernacle would go with them. Now, after Israel settles in the promised land, Solomon builds a temple in the city of Jerusalem. Now, unlike the tabernacle that was mobile, the temple is static. If Israel wanted to meet with God, they would have to go to the city of Jerusalem and they would worship there. And likewise, if the nations would want to meet with God, they would have to go to Jerusalem. So if you read through the prophets, you'll see there is a theme. The theme is all the nations will eventually go to Jerusalem to meet with God. And it makes sense because that is where the presence of God dwelt. And that is Cyrus's vision, that the temple would be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, Cyrus also envisions that Israel's Gentile neighbors would also assist them in the rebuilding of the temple. Look at verse 4. It says, And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And we see that that phrase, men of his place, describes these Gentile neighbors who will help Israel to rebuild the temple. And so God answers this prayer from Daniel and from other Israelites of returning to the land, rebuilding the temple by stirring up Cyrus, who envisions a rebuilt temple in the land of Judah. And God continues to stir up people even now. That he stirs up people in our present day to build up the church, to accomplish its mission of making disciples. And as for you, Every morning you come here, you know that the mission of our church, the desire of our church, is to make God-loving and compassionate disciples of Jesus Christ among all nations, here in Houston and abroad. And so when you feel stirred up, when you feel burdened, prompted by some need you see, pray. 
pray to see if there are other people who share in this vision that God has given you. Ask God to reveal to you who else shares in this burden. Who are the other people who are stirred up by the same task? Now note this. Cyrus doesn't keep this vision to himself in his own room, in his palace. He writes it down and he proclaims it. That's what it says in verse 1. He made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So he communicated to his subjects. He communicated both orally, verbally, but also through written decree. That while you are praying for this burden, this vision that you have, that you're to share it with other people. See if other people will affirm that vision. Now let's say you find that your spiritual life is a little bit dry, that you compare it to saltine crackers without the water. You have little time to read the Bible, to pray, and you conclude, I actually need some help. It would be helpful if other guys would be able to join me to come together with me either on a Saturday morning, weekday evening, after the kids go to bed, to read the Bible and to pray. And it's not going to be forever. I mean, it's just going to be a concentrated time, maybe 12 weeks. Now, at small group, you know, eventually you all separate your group into prayer or for prayer. Guys in one room, girls in one room. And of course, you know the process. You know, you share a praise, and then you share a prayer. Each guy shares. And then when it comes to you, you ask the guys to pray that, hey, you know, my spiritual life has been feeling a little dry, but, you know, the Lord gave me this crazy idea of potentially getting together with some other guys to study the Bible together for 12 weeks and to pray. So you ask them to pray to see if there might be other men who are willing to do that. And the next day after small group, your phone vibrates. You receive a text from a guy in the small group. He writes that, you know, he gave some thought to what you shared the other night. And God convicted him this morning of how little time he also spends in the word as well. In fact, his wife also tells him that too. That he needs to read the Bible and pray if he's going to spiritually lead this family. And so he shares with him that he would be open to joining you for a 12-week Bible study. So God answers that prayer, that God has showed you that there are other people that he has stirred up that share in that same vision. Now, this idea doesn't just apply to studying the Bible with other guys and other gals. It could be a vision to, on how to serve the homeless in our community, that God may give you a vision to equip members of our church to deepen in their understanding of missions by hosting a perspectives class. God might give you a vision to mentor the youth of our church. Or God might give you a vision of practicing a Sabbath even though your schedule is so busy. And you pray to see if God might raise up other people within this church and within our community that might share in that vision. So that's the first type of person. A person that envisions the work that is to be done. Now, what is the second type of person that God raises up when you feel stirred or burdened by something? God stirs up people that will do the work. 
that God raises up people who will work with you to accomplish the task, that he recruits help for you, aid. He will give you people who will help you to accomplish this burden, this vision, that he provides you partners to labor alongside of you to accomplish this task, that God will stir up people who will do the work with you. And we see this also in the task of rebuilding the temple, that God stirs up three tribes to do the work of rebuilding the temple. Look at verse 5. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, you may look at this list and you're like, well, there's four groups that are mentioned. There's Judah, there's Benjamin, there's Levites, there's priests. Now, that fourth category, priests, I would lump together the Levites because the Levites serve in a priestly role. So and technically, there are three tribes that are mentioned. Now, why are these three tribes out of all the 12 tribes of Israel chosen? This requires a little bit of history of Israel. Okay, now, if you recall, Israel begins as a united kingdom. But then after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom splits into two parts. You have the northern kingdom of Israel. You have the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Assyria conquers that northern kingdom in 722 BC, takes them into exile. Now, all that you have left is Judah. And then the Babylonians finally conquer Judah in 586 BC. Now, the kingdom of Judah is comprised of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. Now, if you recall, the kings of the United Kingdom of Israel come from these two tribes. You have Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. You have David and Solomon who come from the tribe of Judah. If you come to Old Testament survey, we will cover that in the next few weeks. Okay? Now, all the kings of the kingdom of Judah would ultimately descend from that tribe. Now, when you think about the kings, the kings of the northern kingdom, they were all bad apples. Okay? Not one of them followed the Lord. It's kind of a different story in Judah. Judah is kind of a mixed bag. Some followed the Lord, some did not. But we'll see that in the post-exilic period, after they returned to the land, that God would use the leaders from the tribe of Judah to reestablish Israel in the land. So it's not a surprise that God would actually move these two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to actually return to the land, rebuild the temple. Now, this, the city of Jerusalem is in the territory of Benjamin. But the task of temple worship is entrusted to another tribe, the tribe of Levi. And the Levites taught Israel the law, helped them to offer up sacrifices in the temple altar. They maintained the temple grounds. They helped Israel to celebrate its various festivals. And the Levites returned with Judah and Benjamin to reestablish Israel's devotion to the Lord. Now, let me go on a tangent for a moment. And I didn't know how to fit this in, so this is a tangent, okay? Think about this. There are 12 tribes within Israel. There are only three tribes that are stirred up, okay? So three over 12 is one-fourth. One-fourth means that there is only 25% of the nation of Israel that are going back to rebuild the temple. Now, think about this. 25% of an organization oftentimes does 100% of the work. Unfortunately, it's also the same within the church, right? That a minority does 
much of the ministry within the context of the church. Now, I don't say that to discourage you. I'm just giving you some kind of analysis, okay? Now, think about this. How amazing would it be if HCC was different? Instead of 25% of our membership contributing to the work of the church, what if more people actually got involved? I mean, imagine what would happen if every single person volunteered to serve in various ministries within this church. I mean, Minister Stan would no longer have to hunt for people to help lead D group or teach youth Sunday school. Mr. Frank wouldn't need to also search for people to help with Awana. We would have enough people to serve on our welcome team so that every time a newcomer comes, they would be greeted and welcomed. Now imagine this. If every single small group member takes ownership in following up with those who are absent, I'm sure all the small group leaders would drop dead in surprise. Because small group leaders would not be the only one following up with those who are absent. Can you imagine how a small group member would feel? Of course I know a small group leader is supposed to message me, call me, email me if I'm absent. That's their job. That is their duty. But if other small group members actually follow up with people who are absent, they will actually be surprised everyone in this small group actually cares about me. Can you imagine if everyone in this church got involved in doing the work of proclaiming the gospel, equipping believers? Okay, and tangent. Okay, so that was tangential. Now, when we feel stirred up by tasks for the Lord, again, we need to pray to see if God would actually stir up people to do this work. I mean, ask God to supply people who are needed to get the work done, whether it be coworkers, partners, co-laborers, teammates. Ask to see if God will provide these people to carry out the task. So think about this. Imagine if you feel led to lead a team of believers on a short-term mission trip to Japan. Okay, your team is going to partner with a local church there, put on a vacation Bible study for the community. This is the vision that you have, and you're going to go there for two weeks to serve. And so you ask God to provide teammates. If this is something, Lord, if this is something that you want to do, you need to provide the coworkers. So you pull in the bulletin announcement, you post messages on the church group meet, Discord, Slack. And after a few days, after the announcement is posted, you begin to receive messages from people in the church who are interested in learning more about the trip. Maybe one person volunteers to join the team because they just finished reading John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad. Maybe there's a college student who volunteers because they just attended a winter mission conference and they feel convicted to participate in a short-term mission trip. Right? That God raises up people who join you in doing that work. Now, we talked about two types of people already that God would stir up. People with a vision, people who will do the work. Now, let's move on to the last type of person that God will stir up. God stirs up people that provide the resources to do the work. He will provide individuals that will provide the supplies that are necessary to accomplish the task. And these supplies, these resources could be skills, it could be finances, it could be tools, knowledge, Whatever is needed to get the job done, God will provide these people because God will stir them up 
to provide the resources to do this work. And we see this in the morning, this morning's text, that God stirs up Gentile neighbors to provide the resources to build the temple. And there are two Gentile neighbors that are mentioned. First, the Gentiles who knew the Israelites, and they provided them financial help. It is the general populace, these citizens, provided the supplies to rebuild the temple. Well, look at verse 6. It says, And all who were about them, these are the neighbors, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Now, it's interesting because as you read the Bible, you'll see that God often raises up Israel's Gentile neighbors to supply them what is needed to build his dwelling place. When Israel leaves Egypt, their Egyptian neighbors supply them with gold and silver that are eventually used to build the tabernacle. When Solomon builds the temple, there is a foreign king from Tyre who supplies supplies to build the temple. And it happens again here, that when they are going to rebuild the temple, God raises up Gentile help to build the temple. So that's the first neighbor that God raises up. There's a second neighbor, Cyrus. That Cyrus provides all the things needed for temple worship so that they can rebuild the temple. Look at verse 7. It says, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. That there is a contrast. Two kings. Nebuchadnezzar, when he destroyed the temple in 5, I believe it's 586 BC, he took away all the implements of temple worship. He took away the incense altar, the table for the showbread, the lampstand, and all the other tools that are used for temple worship. They served as trophies. It's like, we beat the Israelites. And he probably put it in the temple of Marduk saying that, we are the best. But then now, Cyrus, in contrast, returns every single item. Now, of course, the Ark of the Covenant, if you're interested, is unaccounted for. And it's not in the well of the souls, I promise you. Okay? Now, this allows Israel then to restart and rebegin worship after the temple is rebuilt. So God stirs up both the Gentile populace and Cyrus to provide the returnees what they need to rebuild the temple and restart temple worship. Now, when we feel stirred up to do God's work, we pray that God would also provide people that provide the resources that are necessary to do the work. Now, remember my previous two examples? Think about those guys who are gathering together to study the Bible and pray together. Now, they have no idea what to study. So then one of them feels prompted, hey, why don't we contact one of the pastors? That's what we pay them for, right? So, hey, some of us guys are planning to get together, to study the Bible together. Do you have any thoughts on what to study? And then a pastor writes back, hey, that's a great idea. Maybe you should start with the book of Ephesians. I mean, it reminds us of our salvation and the implications of our salvation. God provides a resource. Remember that short-term mission trip to Japan that will be doing that vacation Bible school for that Japanese community near the church? Maybe the team doesn't know what VBS material to use. They pray about it, and they think, hey, why don't we contact Mr. Frank? And they reach out to Mr. Frank for different material that they could use for that VBS. Or maybe God supplies someone who has done VBS before 
to join the team to help organize the VBS. Maybe there's a college student who wants to join the team, but they don't have the financial means to fund that short-term trip. This prompts her to write to other believers to share about how the Lord has burdened her to serve on this trip and to see if they might be able to partner with her in prayer and in financial support. And God provides people who support her financially so that she might be able to serve. But again, what happens when we feel stirred up to do something for God? We pray. We pray to see if God will stir up these other people. And there are these three types of people that God will stir up. People who have the same vision, people who do the work with you, and people who will supply what is needed to do the work. Now, how do we know that God will do this? How can we trust that God will actually stir up such people? Well, think about this. God has a vision. Okay? His vision is that all of humanity would glorify him by imaging God. Yet sin prevents humanity from doing this. So God supplies his son, Jesus Christ, who does the work of redeeming mankind by dying on the cross and then rising three days later. And then he sends out his followers, Christians, to do this work. But he supplies us with a resource, what is needed. He gives us the Holy Spirit, that he stirs up our hearts to do what accords to his will because this is what he has done himself. That he will then stir up others also to help us if it accords to God's will. But then the question is, what if God does not raise up such people? What if God does not stir up those individuals? Then we have to have the humility to recognize that maybe our vision, our goal, our desire doesn't align with God's will. And if that's the case, then we need to ask God, what do you want me to do instead? Give me a vision that aligns with your mission. Now let me close with this. After Hudson Taylor felt that stirring to begin that mission organization, China Inland Mission to reach the interior of China, God provided 16 laborers to join him in this work. This organization would then grow to 52 workers in 1876, and then it would comprise of a fifth of all the missionaries working in China. When Hudson Taylor died, there were 876 missionaries working in the 18 provinces of China. China Inland Mission would later change its name to OMF and expanded the work from China to encompass all of East Asia. OMF celebrated its 150th anniversary in 2015. So by my count, if my addition is correct, that would make 159 years old. They are a 159-year-old organization. And its mission has expanded from seeing the Chinese evangelized to seeing all of the unreached people groups within East Asia reached with the gospel. Let me read you their mission statement. Through God's grace, we aim to see an indigenous biblical church movement in each people group of East Asia, evangelizing their own people and reaching out in mission to other peoples. This is what God did through Hudson Taylor's work after he felt stirred up in his heart 
by thinking about the many unreached in China. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is what is God stirring up each of you to do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mission and the task that you have given us to make disciples. And we recognize that as we look around our church and our community, there are so many needs. And that for those of us who felt the stirring, a prompting to do your work, we pray that this morning's message would encourage them to share and to pray and to see if other people would come alongside them to participate in this work so that your name would be known among all nations and that people would come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.